Welcome to the never-ending quest for clarity. This is Loving Liberty with Brian Hyde. Hey, welcome to the second hour of our broadcast. And here's the phone number, 801-331-8113. So I was thinking maybe it would be a good time, since we're coming up on the end of 2019, maybe it would be a good time to take a look back at Bundy Ranch five years down the road. From when a lot of people, you know, first got their introduction to, well, who's this Bundy family that I'm hearing of out west? thought we could maybe look at, look at what was happening um, over the last five years. And I'm going to start by saying that, uh, like most people, I'm still a little bit shocked at how things have shaken out since the events of 2014. Now, even just a couple of years ago, though, the fate of Clive and Bundy and, and those who stood with him was still very much in the balance. I don't think many people could have predicted that the charges against Bundy and others would be dismissed with prejudice and that most of them would be free men. In fact, fewer still could have foreseen that the federal government's flagrant disregard for justice would end up being the reason for that dismissal. I mean, you think back on this, from the government's point of view, this situation seemed like an absolute slam dunk. I watched a presentation that uh, one of the attorneys, Morgan Philpot, gave. He was speaking at the Newquist breakfast a couple of years ago. And he talked about how people who face charges in federal court end up getting convicted about 97.7% of the time. That's not a typo, by the way. Almost 98% of the time, those charges stick. And the reason here isn't that, uh, well, every one of those people are actually guilty, or that the prosecutors and the investigators are just that good at making the charges stick. It's actually what you would expect when you were going up against a politically driven opponent with virtually unlimited resources and time. So defendants will often take a plea deal for a lower charge and a lighter sentence simply because if they take it to the jury and lose, their sentence could be much worse. So just as a quick recap, and granted, I'm not going to pretend I'm not biased about this, but this is my best understanding of the events that transpired. The Bureau of Land Management had been at odds with Clive and Bundy since about 1993, at which point he had refused to go along with their attempts to convert the grazing and water rights he owned into rented privileges for which he must pay their bureaucracy. Over time, as the BLM underwent management changes with the election of a new administration in 2008, someone made the decision, well, it's time to bring this Bundy into compliance. Now, the thing you have to understand is the fact that Bundy's cattle eating forage on this vast, untamed desert landscape did not victimize the American people in the slightest. Only the U.S. government could maintain with a straight face that, well, for those cattle to eat grass without its bureaucrats being paid a fee would constitute a crime. I understand. Their rules are their rules. I'm just saying, who's the victim? you got to go through some pretty serious mental gymnastics to paint the American people or the federal government or the desert tortoise as a victim. 
because during the time that cattle, that uh, Clive and Bunny was not paying for the f- f- privilege of exercising these grazing and water rights he owned, he was continuing to put hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of watering holes and other related water infrastructure into place out there on that grazing allotment at his own expense. And I only mention this because those water sources benefited every living creature in that harsh environment. And you have to remember, too, there had been several attempts to impound Bundy's cattle that ended in failure when Bundy simply refused to cooperate with the attempted rustling. But it's essential that you remember, at no point was he violent with anyone. So as the BLM set about putting together a new operation to trespass Cliven's cattle off the disputed allotment, they had access to multiple threat assessments the FBI had done on the Bundy family. And according to the FBI, the threat posed by the Bundys was minimal, as in the lowest threat level possible. What the FBI told the BLM was that as long as they weren't too heavy-handed or tried backing the Bundys into a corner, the worst they might get is a punch in the nose. In fact, it's notable that the FBI actually suggested to the BLM, maybe what you should do is just de-escalate this whole thing, just dismiss the grazing fees, and start over fresh. That was an option. That was something that was actually suggested to them. But instead of heeding these suggestions or heeding the assessments, the BLM, under the direction of Special Agent Dan Love, set about putting together the most militarized, aggressive, heavy-handed operation in its history. Now, why else would there have been a federal joint terrorism task force complete with SWAT teams, snipers, and around-the-clock surveillance of Bundy Ranch in the weeks before the April 2014 impoundment? Why else would you send a 200-man task force to Bunkerville with orders to kick them in the teeth and to tase, manhandle, and point-loaded firearms at innocent people? That was the choice that BLM leaders under Dan Love made about how we're going to handle this. They were there to demonstrate and provoke a a confrontation to show once and for all who's in charge. And the lies that they perpetuated about the Bundys were just setting the stage for conflict. Now, if you think I'm just pulling this out of a you know hat, um, no, I'm not. This is all stuff that came out in the trials that followed the events of that fateful day. And more was coming out even as Judge Navarro dismissed those charges with prejudice. It was getting embarrassing for the government. And, of course, the Wooten memo from a former BLM investigator further confirmed what the Bundys had said all along. I'm still waiting for the day that the second Wooten memo is unsealed because it could shed a lot further light on what the BLM was up to, if the feds will ever release it. I think they're pretty intent that they don't because it's going to be more embarrassing than the first Wooten memo. The key thing is, five years ago, when the Bundys called for help, their fears of another Waco-style massacre at the hands of overly zealous federal agents weren't unfounded. And those who answered that call weren't madmen or malcontents. They were American citizens who saw firsthand just how out of control government had become. And the fact that they backed down an armed mob of government aggressors without firing a shot is as much a miracle as it is proof that firearms in the hands of the citizenry can be an effective check on tyranny. 
and the jurors who were allowed to hear these truths rightly refused to convict the Bundys and others. Now, sadly, there is a handful of defendants who took plea deals or were convicted by less than fully informed jurors. And unfortunately, some of them still remain in custody. I mean, it took a long time. It took years for the truth to emerge from the darkness. But when it did, it set the Bundys and others free. And more importantly, it showed that those who rushed to judgment or who parroted the official narrative regarding the Bundys were mistaken. Now, making mistakes is part of being human. But there's been very few people, precious few people, who've had the character to admit their error. Now, I'm going to take a moment here to make a shameless plug for Ammon Bundy and the Liberty Effect, which you can hear every Thursday evening at 5 o'clock here on the Loving Liberty Radio Network. Look, you have the opportunity to go to the source. And I'm not saying that, you know, if you, if you just hear Ammon say it, why well, he's going to convince you. But you'll have one less filter to have to try to get through as far as someone who is directly involved. You want to see what does he really think about this? Why did they do what they did? Ammon can explain it to you as well as it can be explained. And one thing that I think Ammon has has brought home from this, and, and in the case of the Hammonds and the occupation of the Malheur Wildlife Refuge, it is possible for American citizens to come to the aid of their neighbors when they are under siege from violent, aggressive, out-of-control government. It is possible for neighbors to come to their neighbor's aid armed, as citizens should be, but peaceful. I'm going to remind you that at the Malheur Wildlife Refuge occupation, it was never a standoff. None of the occupiers pointed firearms at other people. That was all strictly done on the part of people wielding the power of the state. But the Hammonds were pardoned. The Bundys and many of those who stood with them are free individuals. I still marvel that Eric Parker, the guy who was up there on the overpass uh, with his rifle pointed through the Jersey barrier, everybody was certain that guy's going to be buried under the jail when the feds get through with him. There was just no way, right? His name was on the, the Facebook post. His picture was everywhere. They had him. And yet after three trials, or maybe it was two and a half trials, the feds finally came to Eric and said, okay, if you'll take this plea to a uh, you know, misdemeanor charge of interfering with a federal agent, we'll drop all the other charges. He wisely took the plea and is a free man and still free to vote, still free to go out and shoot his guns. And to the feds' chagrin to mock the federal government for trying to put him away in the first place. So there we are, five years later. Hey, welcome back to Loving Liberty. 801-331-8113. I've been spending a little bit of time in this hour talking about the Bundy situation. Now here we are, five years after the fact, almost six years after the fact of, of Bundy Ranch. And I, I have to tell you, it's not the outcome that I think a lot of people thought was going to happen. And it's not, not even over yet. If anything, the reset button was hit and, and they're right back to square one. The Bundy's cattle are still out there on that allotment grazing the federal government even though it has dropped the uh, the case or has dismissed the case with prejudice 
yeah, they're still making some rumbles about how, well, maybe we can reindict again. And as much as I would be opposed to the waste of, of taxpayers' money and, and the time of those who would be involved, there's a part of me that says, you know what? It would work out in the favor of the Bundys again. Because there's enough truth that has squeezed through the cracks and got past all those gatekeepers that were supposed to be keeping it, you know, out of the public eye. I would love to see it go before a jury. I would love to see a jury put a decisive, not guilty verdict to this. I mean, I think back to to the day of the dismissal. And there were a lot of us that were sitting there waiting in line at courtroom 7C there at the federal courthouse in Vegas. And we we were all very anxious to hear what Judge Gloria Navarro had decided since she had declared a mistrial back on December 20th. I think it was January 8th that we were standing there waiting to get in line. And, you know, I knew that there would be a lot of people in the courthouse that day. And so normally, you know, court starts about 830. You figure, okay, if you get there 815, you're still going to have plenty of options to to get into the courtroom. Nope. I was there at 730 that morning and I was still way back in the line. People showed up very, very early. And you could see about half the people in the hallway were, you know, Bundy family members, but there were supporters and members of the media that were also there. And I also spotted about a half dozen of the jurors from the recent trial who had shown up for that last day in court. In fact, I actually asked them, why are you here? And their responses were, well, we wouldn't have missed this for the world. We want to see this thing through to the end. I talked to them after the judge dismissed the case and asked them, was this the outcome that you'd hoped for? And the answer was definitive and united. Yes, they were not going to convict. And this just underscores the results of the three earlier trials in which jurors declined to validate the government's claims and refused to convict. But that's not an outcome that anybody could have predicted when that latest trial began. I remember the very first time I sat in that courtroom in Las Vegas. I was thinking, man, I am not going to like Judge Navarro. I was pretty sure I would I would end up hating her. Because I was aware of how she'd presided over two earlier trials of defendants from the Bunkerville standoff in 2014. And I knew that the defense had had their hands tied so tightly by her instructions as to make their case almost meaningless. But Navarro's handling of the trial of Cliven Bundy and his sons Ammon and Ryan and and Ryan Payne was actually a lot more even-handed than I would have expected. And from Ryan Bundy's opening statement to the cross-examination of the government's first three witnesses, an astonishing quantity of truth was brought into the light of day. And those truths revealed the incredible depths of deception and duplicity to which members of the FBI and the Bureau of Land Management and the U.S. Attorney's Office were willing to go. In their haste to provoke a violent confrontation with the Bundys, a number of government agencies were found to be pursuing an agenda of vengeance rather than justice. And as this was all unfolding, it was fascinating to see Navarro's growing recognition of just how badly the prosecution had been violating the rules that govern due process. And when she outlined her reasons for dismissing the capes, she called out the government's misconduct in no uncertain terms. I believe the words she used were that a universal sense of justice has been violated. That's when I knew for sure, okay, the truth has triumphed here. 
Now, I don't know if anything changed in Navarro's understanding. I don't know if anything changed within her heart from the previous two trials. But I am grateful that she took the approach that she did. One of the things that remains etched in my mind from that morning, as we were gathered out there in the hallway waiting for the courtroom to open, the Bundy family consistently prayed before they would go into court. And and it was cool because actually the Bundy family had very consistently called on their supporters to pray for Judge Navarro as well as other members of the government's team that their hearts would be softened. And that day, as we were getting ready to go into the courtroom, it was Ryan Bundy who led those who were waiting in the hallway in a heartfelt prayer. And in his prayer, he specifically prayed for Navarro, prayed for her well-being, asked for her to be guided in understanding. And as Navarro was later explaining the relevant precedents and case law that supported her decision to dismiss with prejudice, I know for a fact she saw many heads bowed in prayer inside that courtroom. And I will always treasure, when she announced that decision, the the quiet but very sincere sense of celebration that swept through that courtroom. And it could be seen, mostly silent tears of joy on people's cheeks, the occasional whisper, you could hear someone say, thank you, God, or praise God. I mean, they they really enforced decorum in that, that courtroom. And so it was... It had to be quietly celebrated. But, you know, this reaction when the judge announced this just underscores the the powerful spiritual dynamic that was present from the very beginning of this saga, but almost never reported on or, for that matter, almost never understood by the public generally. Only if you knew the Bundys would you know, hey, this family placed their trust in God from the start. And I can sympathize with the people who would dismiss this because, well, I've never seen anything like that or I've never experienced it personally. I get where you're coming from. If I hadn't seen and experienced them firsthand for myself, I would be inclined to doubt as well. But for whatever reason, I was there, I saw it, and I can speak to it. I was amazed too that the difficulty and pain of those years of waiting for trial with their men imprisoned and all of the, the anger and the misinformation directed against their family did not break the family. In fact, it made them stronger in every way. Their faith in God was strengthened, not diminished by their suffering. Their marriage and family ties were forged in the fires of hardship. I remember Angie Bundy telling me uh, and some friends one night that she says, you know, I felt really sorry for myself when Ryan was first locked up and I was just like, why, why God, why is my husband in prison? And these other, you know, moms and these other wives in in my church congregation, their husbands are here caring for their families. Why is it so hard for us? But she says, I came to realize that as hard as that was, it was a blessing in some ways because it strengthened their relationship. And, and, And she's not bragging when she said this, she just said, our relationship is stronger than most people's ever will be because of what we've been through. I haven't been through what they were, were going through so that I can say, yeah, she's exactly right. But it makes sense to me. They've been through a proving that, uh, that really solidified those bonds and the Bundy's came out battle hardened, but not bitter, not hateful. 
And if you've heard them speak in the, in the days or weeks or months since then, they still speak with love, but also with the conviction of people who have actually had skin in the game and have been willing to suffer for their beliefs. And with all due respect to you armchair quarterbacks, you simply don't have that kind of cre- uh, that uh, credibility. Nor should you. <laughs> so that's where things stand right now. The problem of an unaccountable, overreaching government that the Bundys have fought to bring to light still exists. I don't know what more it'll take before we understand this isn't, and it wasn't ever, just the Bundys' problem. But I'm grateful for, for what has come out thus far. And I'm sure that this saga is far from over. All right, we're going to take a quick break. We'll pay a couple of bills. We'll be back right after this. Trusted voices of truth and insight. This is the Loving Liberty Radio Network. Hey, welcome back to Loving Liberty. 801-331-8113. Let's go to the phone where Sam is standing by in Missouri. Hi, Sam. Hey, good afternoon and uh, good broadcast both hours. I mean, it's always good stuff, but the the way you took the gun control thing as well as this issue was was really excellent. And uh, But uh, where I weigh in on this, uh, I'm always suspicious of the government when they try anybody because I know the way the game is played. They have unlimited resources to run somebody through the ringer. And um, secondly, the fact that the government would dare even consider trying to retry the Bundys, for example, again, you know, reeks of uh, double jeopardy, which really shouldn't be. I mean, it's settled. It's over with. It should remain that way. That should tell everybody everything they need to know. You know, in our in our system, you're not supposed to do that. Once the verdict is rendered, that should be the end of it, and there should be no, you know, uh, none of this double jeopardy stuff. But uh, you know, this is um, this is what we face, and we have a government that gets out of control. Um, I used to carry a guy on our um, station here, a guy by the name of George Gordon, who was out of Isabella, Missouri, and he was a guy who used to help people through the court system. And he used to always say one of the worst things that you could have is a lawyer because he said uh, he said lawyers will always rule in favor of the state. Pretty much what you were saying earlier, about 97, 98 percent of the time. And uh, but um, but the the main thing here is is that because the government is so powerful, I think it should be. I think the way the situation should go is that they should be forced to prove beyond the shadow of a doubt, more so than anybody, their case because of the fact that they do have so much power and they do have so many resources to uh, make somebody's life miserable. I'd rather see a, 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 I'd rather see a situation where um, we would have a guilty person uh, walk free once in a while than to have a federal government that just railroads everybody through the system. And, um, you know, I mean, that doesn't mean I want murders and everything else out on the street. But the point of the matter is, due process is very, very important. And it's quite clear that even today we don't have the kind of due process that we need in the the, uh, judicial system. 
No, it's and and there there are temptations to cut corners. You know, the red flag laws are, are another example of how that can take place. I one thing that I have really learned from this, Sam, and and I try to encourage people. Just because you hear, hey, well, somebody was hauled off to jail, do not let that cement in your mind that somehow they must have deserved it. You will find that there are a lot of people who are behind bars who really don't deserve to be there. And it's, you know, we're just conditioned to think, well, you know, they'd have to be there for a reason. We want to believe that because otherwise it would mean that uh, government's acting in a predatory fashion. But the truth is, sometimes it is. Well, see, and that's the thing that we need to stop and remember that. Uh, that our original, the original intent of the system that was set up was that these kind of things should not be allowed to happen and, and uh, would not happen, and then uh, here they are. And then you see all this bad law, like you were mentioning, red flag laws. I mean, I don't think people stop to realize that under these red flag laws, Brian, let's say you didn't have any guns in your possession at all. Let's say you were gunless, Okay. But because I had a vendetta against you, I could literally, under red flag law, I could do what's called swatting against you if I wanted to. Yep. That's the thing that people don't stop to think about with this. And this is the problem. Uh, we run on um, we run on emotion, and this is how we get bad law. And we got to be very, very careful not to do that. But, uh, Amen. I just, uh, just wanted to weigh in on all that because... Uh, like you, I mean, obviously I wasn't where you were, but I did cover this story extensively on my own broadcast with the resources that I had, and I was um, uh, screaming from the rooftops that there was more than met the eye here. In fact, clear down to the point that I actually had, I was actually able to um, grab a hold of the audio track of uh, uh, Shauna Cox's uh, video when she was uh, shooting her video from inside the truck from her cell phone when uh, they were shooting the heck out of that truck. Right. And even from my vantage point, I knew something was horribly wrong with that whole thing as it was going down. Yep. Yep. And uh, I, in fact, I got, a, I had a lot of people around here locally that complimented us on that for bringing that story forward because I brought it forward in a way that, uh, that uh, nobody else had, and then of course now I'm marrying people like you that are helping further bring the story forward, and uh, that was probably one of the one of the uh, most detailed stories I've ever covered in the entire time I've been doing this, and uh, I just thank God that it turned out in a positive way. The only, like I say, the only sad part of it is that we lost Lavoie Finnicum, and I I was very impressed with Lavoie. He was another one who uh, quite clearly. Um, there was no reason for this man to be killed. He did far more good in mankind than uh, than just about anybody I've ever seen as far as oh, I agree. The, the work that he did. I mean, you know, just uh, a wonderful guy. And then here the guy got gunned down just because of government vengeance, you know. So, uh, well, I, I've, anyway. tried to, I've tried to explain this to people um, over the years, and I probably sound nuts to even suggest such a thing. But I was at Bundy Ranch on the Thursday before the standoff i was there the morning of the standoff and i swear to you there was a feeling that something incredibly important was happening there and and that's i i have no other way to describe it other than there was i mean the the tension was indescribable but there was a sense that there was something um historic that was taking place that was a lot bigger than simply a rancher versus the federal government and I know I'm not the only yeah. one who felt it, but, but I'm here to tell you, there, there was a very strong sense that something very 
historical or historically significant was taking place. And and looking back on that from five years down the road, it's like, wow, if we had yeah. only known, if we had only recognized. Well, I will tell you that uh, I have a contact who um, is going to start doing a show on our station here from, uh, you know, that's, that's uh, been on some of the conference calls with these people in Virginia that are setting up these militias and stuff. And he said, unlike some of the... Um, groups before they've gotten involved in this he said these are pretty even-handed people that are rallying around their sheriffs out there and i'm glad to hear that because you know as i've always said the way this needs to go you got to follow back from the point uh as an example of what happened during the civil war and that is the north was the one that fired the first shots in the uh in the what eventually became the civil war in other words you let the government make the first move but boy, if they make the first move, you know, then obviously it's on. But uh, you know, you, you, if you if you make the first move as a hothead, then you're certainly going to lose the fight. Yep, Sam, thank you so much for your take on this. You bet. God bless. You know, wh- I'm, I'm going to surprise you with maybe I'll surprise some of you. Some of you will know um, my experience at Bundy Ranch. Not only um, affirmed to me something that I had suspected for some time, but it really solidified my understanding. Um, whatever you may think of God, I can tell you that uh, that the cause of liberty is a cause that that is close to your Creator's heart, and that doesn't mean that if you just wave the flag hard enough, you know why He'll come down on your side every time. More like He is the author of liberty. And I think this is something that was understood during the founding period of this nation. I can tell you that uh, what I saw from the Bundy family was an absolute and utter reliance on God and on God as their protector. So much so that when uh, my friends and I showed up there to meet with Ammon and with Ryan, um, it was really interesting. Most of us showed up unarmed. There was no discussion beforehand. Well, what are you taking or are you going to take anything? We just showed up and started out. Hey, did you did you come carrying today? No. What about you? And and we'd left our guns home. And I really believe that part of that was uh, the product of it was it was a little bit of test of faith. Will you trust that God will be your protector? Because you definitely got the sense that you were walking into enemy territory. I mean, there was a truck with guys with rifles sitting on every hilltop. The message couldn't have been more clear. Just give us a reason. Give us a reason. We'll pounce on you and arrest you or tase you or point loaded guns at you or whatever it may be. But I know that uh, many of us who were there that day at Bundy Ranch came away with an understanding that guns alone are not enough to protect your freedom and to protect, you know, the, the, the blessings of liberty. I'm grateful for that experience. I realize it might fall on, you know, some unwilling ears. But that's one of the reasons why the Bundys were able to come through, as they were. And it actually caused me to question a lot of assumptions I had held for many years. How much am I leaning on my gun to be my protector? I'm not telling you there's one right way to approach this, but I'm telling you that's a, that's a very interesting question to have to ask and sort out in your own heart. When we come back, we're going to talk about some of the things that people who are interested in making a difference have to be willing to ask themselves. Whether it's in big things or small things, there are six questions that proven difference makers will ask themselves. 
Maybe you'll see that uh, maybe you've been asking some of these questions of yourself. We'll address them just the other side of these messages. Welcome back to Loving Liberty. 801-331-8113. Pull up a chair. Let's have a little talk. <laughs> I feel so dad-like here wearing my uh, my uh, jacket with the suede elbow patches, my perfectly brill-creamed hair, my pipe hanging from a corner of my mouth. Come sit around my easy chair while I dispense fatherly advice. Okay, it's maybe not quite that pronounced, but I want to share with you some thoughts about what it means to be a difference maker. And I want you to consider this in light of what I believe is going to be a really interesting year that's unfolding ahead of us. I think it's very easy to succumb to the temptation to waste time and energy trying to fix blame for all the little dilemmas and conflicts you see playing out before us. Isn't that what politicians and pundits are best at inciting? All those little fights that pit people against one another? Well, blaming others has been kind of a national pastime of sorts for the crowd. The crowd's been led to believe if we chant louder, if we clap harder, if we post on social media, that's going to lead to effective change. Difference makers, no better. And it's not because those committed to making a difference think they're better than the masses. After all, humility is an essential part of genuine leadership. But the people who ultimately have impact for good in the world are almost invariably the ones who have found a moral clarity that they value above their own comfort and personal advantage. And I'm just going out on a limb, but I'm supposing that the fact that you're hearing my voice right now means you are one of those people. Don't be afraid of it. Embrace it. It starts with the personal recognition that there's an intolerable gap between the way things are and the way they could be. Now, this isn't just a simple case of narcissistic wants that we're going to go impose on everybody. It's a realization that every one of us faces a conscious decision to either stand for what we hold true or to remain silent rather than risk someone's disapproval. And, you know, if you have ever stood for anything of substance in your life, that that full well invites the risk of pain and punishment. But if you're not willing to suffer for your beliefs, you're really not a believer of any depth. Dr. Martin Luther King spoke about the courage conviction requires when he said, on some positions, cowardice asks the question, is it expedient? And then expedience comes along and asks the question, is it politic? Vanity asks the question, is it popular? Conscience asks the question, is it right? There comes a time where one must take when one must take the position that is neither safe nor politic nor popular, but he must do it because conscience tells him it is right. Now, this just means that anyone who challenges the status quo can expect to be portrayed as an enemy of the system. And if you've never been on the receiving end of the mindless derision and ridicule dished out by the people who cautiously hide out in the crowd, it's hard to appreciate how difficult standing alone can be. But, as uncomfortable as it may be, it can still serve a very positive purpose. Serious opposition is a powerful tool to show us where our conviction lies. It also shows us whether we're having impact. 
In fact, you can get a very strong indication of how much impact you're having by how much flack you're receiving. And it's not for those who are more attached to security or acceptance than they are to their principles. So, understanding what makes a difference maker. Here are a few questions that anyone who wants to make a serious difference has to be willing to ask. Number one, is there anything besides my family for which I would be willing to risk my reputation, my livelihood, my personal freedom, or my life? See the beauty of this? There's no wrong answer here. Number two, how bad would things have to get before I would be willing to act without permission? Number three, is it possible to make my stand while remaining socially neutral? Number four, is there anything that I could be doing that is more important, with the possible exception of my family, than what I'm doing at this moment? Number five, is there a line in the sand that marks the point of no return where making a stand for what I believe matters, what I believe matters, requires me to break with normal society? By the way, I see people hitting this one quite often. As normal society is telling us, ah, there's no big deal with, you know, drag queen story hour and that kind of stuff. There are people going, you know what, (laughs) this is where I'm going to have to draw that line and say, I can't be a part of this. Question number six, is there a role that I must play in standing up for truth as I understand it? And if so, what is that role? Now, those aren't the kind of questions you're going to likely hear from people who are craving the perceived safety of the herd or anxious to reassure their rulers that they love them. Those are hard questions. Those are the kind of questions that uh, show a certain amount of introspection. That's something opportunists really don't like to get into. They're the kind of questions that require a greater love of your principles than of yourself or even your reputation. A good test of whether our willingness to stand for principle is self-serving or not can be found whether we are willing to boldly speak out when we're not the one who's being directly harmed. I think Ben Franklin put it this way. Justice will not be served until those who are unaffected are as outraged as those who are. Now, as crazy as things are getting, I want to suggest that the coming year is likely to bring opportunities for each of us to act as difference makers. And instead of walking away from your principles, I'm encouraging you consider embracing your unique role. Ask yourself the questions that I just shared with you. And based on your answers, go out and make the world a better place. Look, just because the world is broken doesn't mean that we are broken. So if we want to live as productive, happy people who are shaping the world in positive ways, we have to be doing more than just griping on social media. And I know it feels good. I know it's I've done it myself. You know, it's just wow, that felt good to get that rant off my chest. But what does it accomplish? Look, there are a lot of folks out there who recognize the disconnect between political promises and actions. In fact, they might even understand at some level that official control over them is tightening and their freedoms are receding at a corresponding rate. But what many lack is the emotional strength to face this reality head on. 
They'd rather grasp at straws to maintain the illusion and hope it'll go away or find something to justify the reason to keep believing in it. And part of this is because they have forgotten how to trust their own minds and to follow what their hearts tell them is true. Also, they're dissuaded by the prospect of being made to suffer for being willing to stand for what they believe. And that's understandable when you realize that multiple generations have been conditioned by those who hold the levers of power, that it's our duty to ostracize and punish anybody who steps out of line. That's our duty. So how do you break out of a nearly universal form of Stockholm Syndrome? Well, as with most authentic solutions, it's something that starts at the individual level rather than as a mass movement. So many people have been locked into a negative, pessimistic mindset for so much of their lives, they really can't imagine reality looking any different. And the stories that dominate the news cycle always tend to highlight the worst and most divisive words and actions of humanity. That's why we tend to view ourselves as broken, unworthy of anything better. If you want to break free of your mental shackles, it takes real effort and a willingness to be misunderstood, even defamed and abused. How many people do you know that would willingly risk that possibility? If you want to see the world in a more positive light, you got to learn first to see yourself in a light that most of us have forgotten. I like Paul Rosenberg's advice. If you really want to connect, make contact with a baby. Hold a baby. He says, babies provide us a kind of spiritual reset. They take us out of the dark mental ruts most of us live in and confront us with a nearly blank human slate. Beings that are suited to far better things than the daily swill most people trudge through. And I I agree with the point he's making here. I look at my little grandson, James. His innocence, his trusting love for everyone around him is a very powerful reminder that every one of us started out this way. There's no bitterness. There's no darkness. There's no sense of hopelessness in him. The sheer potential of his entire life is still before him. And when he comes and sees me, it reminds me that there was a time when it was easier to recognize and feed the good that surrounds us. So many people just seem like they want to live their lives for the purpose of convincing us it's impossible to live in the real world without rejecting what's good or humble or innocent. Why do we consider these people to be the sages of our time? Yeah, there are people who could rightly be classified as indecent by their actions, but they're a tiny portion of the overall population, most of whom's actions demonstrate that they're by and large good and decent individuals. Why should it be considered naive to acknowledge that reality? I guess it's, I like to think of it this way. The world may be broken in more ways we can count, but that doesn't mean that we have to conform to that state in order to stand for something. Welcome to the Loving Liberty Radio Network. 